says that Torah is holy. Shirashirim is holy of holies. Because in Shirashirim, Shlomo HaMelech is basically describing the various levels and various stages of relationship, of connection between God and the Jews and Jews and God. In order to do this, he uses the analogy of a bride and a groom or of a man and a woman and the various struggles or feelings or emotions or stages of, of love that they go through. In chapter 5, there's a series of verses that the Rebbe once explained, which the Rebbe once explained, in a fascinating way, which after we finish reading it, uh, we'll talk about the relevance of it and the um, the effect that it had. So chapter 5 begins with Bo Silagani, I came to my garden, Achisi Kala, my sister, my bride. I came to my garden and I enjoyed the delicacies, the wine, the uh, the fragrances, the honey, and the milk. And we ate together and drank together and got drunk together. This basically, Rashi says, is a description of the time when the Jews came to Israel and the Beis Amikdash was built and there was Aaron, the, the high priest, and there was and there were the, uh, the, the regular Kohanim and there were the sacrifices and the uh, incense on the, on the Mizbeach and God and Jews finally were able to, uh, to enjoy each other's company without distraction. <clears throat> but after that, Ani Yeshena, I am asleep. But my heart is awake. This is already a description of Golos. When the Jew falls asleep, he is asleep to all matters of Yiddishkeit. And he goes through life as if in a dream. And Golos is compared to a dream. And that's why it says that when Mashiach comes, we will awake as if from a dream. Hayinu kechelmen, we will be as if we had been dreaming. <clears throat> what is it about a dream? In a dream, the order and sequence of faculties in the human being is disrupted. While a person's awake, his mind controls what he's going to feel and think. And that's why when you're awake, you never imagine yourself flying through the air. You never imagine uh, an elephant going through the eye of a needle. You never imagine monsters that aren't there. 
because your mind won't let you. But when you're asleep, your heart is scared, genuinely frightened by a monster that you know is not there. So how did the heart get scared of a monster that isn't there? It's because the heart is not following the instructions of the mind. And so the emotions are functioning on their own, and your thought and imagination is functioning on its own. And if you speak, if you talk in your sleep, it's your mouth functioning on its own. And if you walk, it's your feet functioning on their own. But everything is... Um, Everything is chaotic because there's no hierarchy. There's no order to the events. And so even as you dream, you ever had this experience, you're dreaming something totally ridiculous. You're frightened of this totally ridiculous thing. And in the dream, you're telling yourself, don't be scared. It's just a dream. But you're scared anyway. So your mind is trying to say something, but the heart isn't listening. That's called dreaming. So in a dream, you can have opposites. You can have a falsehood and think it's true. You can have a truth and think it's false. You can be afraid of something that isn't there, not afraid of something that is there. Everything backwards. A topsy-turvy world. And Golis is a topsy-turvy world, where that which is evil is considered good, and that which is good is considered old-fashioned and evil. So it's a backward world, like in a dream. And when Mashiach comes, even on a personal level, when we have our personal Mashiach, it's like waking up from a bad dream. And you can't believe how you could have taken it seriously while you were sleeping. So Ani Yeshena, the Jewish people, the collective soul of the Jews, says, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. In other words, I'm, my heart is uncomfortable, is looking forward to something. And the voice of my beloved is uh, calling my attention, knocking on the door. And a voice says, Open up for me, let me in. My sister, my friend, my dove, Tamosi, my twin. So my beloved is knocking and asking to be let in. And he uses these expressions of, uh, of affection, sister, friend, dove, twin. These are all degrees of closeness. Sister is a degree of closeness. Ayasi is even closer. Yeinasi is higher than the first two. And tamosi, twin, meaning that one without the other is incomplete. So... What God is asking, what God is, is pleading for, is that even though we're in Golis, and even though we're asleep to godly things, God knocks on the door. doesn't wait for us to come knocking on his door, to come knocking on heaven's door. He knocks on our door and says, let me in. Pischili, open up for me. And as the Medrash explains, open up just a crack, just a tiny crack, like the eye of a needle, and I will open it up the rest of the way to the width and, and breadth of a, 
of a palace door. So all God is asking for is a little bit of openness. What does God want that openness to accomplish? He wants all these four levels, four levels of closeness. Because God says, I am wet, I'm dripping from the rain from out here. Which is basically a description of God's unhappiness in Golis. That Golis affects God too. And just as we are afflicted by Golis, God is afflicted by Golis. As it says in the Medrash that God says to Mashiach, when Mashiach complains about how hard things are, are for him, God says, you're complaining. Since the destruction of the temple, I haven't been able to sit on my throne. And he uses this, this quote here, that, uh, that I'm wet from all the rains and I'm uh, drenched from being outside. In other words, I, have, I don't have a home. When Jews don't have a home, God doesn't have a home. So God says, open up a little bit. I want to be your sister. I want to be your friend. I want to be your dove. I want to be your twin. So what do we respond? So our soul says to God, Poshatati eskutenti. I've taken off my robe. A chocha el How can I put it on again? In other words, it's too late already. Go away. I've already taken off my robe. I'm going to get up now and get dressed. I don't want. Which means, as we're learning in Tanya, that mitzvahs are garments. And Torah is bread. So the Jew says, or the neshama of the Jew says, you want me to start doing mitzvahs again? You want me to get dressed all over again? I can't. I already took off my garments. I'm, I'm out of the habit of doing mitzvahs. So how can I go and get dressed all over again? Can't do it. So the angel of justice says, the attribute of justice in heaven says, you've washed, I've washed my feet of them. Why should I get them dirty again? So the, the Midas Hadin, says to God, leave them. You threw them out. You washed your hands of them, so to speak. Why do you want to get dirty again with them? Listen to what they're saying. They're saying that they don't want to do mitzvahs, that they can't, they forgot how, they don't know anymore. So, so fine, forget it. They've taken off their robe and they don't want to put it back on. You've washed your feet from them. Don't get it dirty again. In other words, Midah keneged midah. Measure for measure. They're saying that they're finished, they don't want to start again. So good. Treat them the same way. You're finished with them and you don't want to get started again. But God doesn't listen. My beloved sticks his hand in through the, op through the hole in the door. Actually, he creates the hole and reaches in to, to let himself in. Which means that God doesn't listen to our 
arguments that we can't, we forgot how, we don't know already anymore. And it doesn't listen to the Midas Hadin, to the, to the demands of, um, of the attribute of justice that says, if they're that bad, forget them. And he opens up the door himself, doesn't wait. And, and my innards respond to him. In other words, there's some kind of an excitement, even though we said, nah, we can't, too late, we ah, forgot it, but something responds. So I get up to open the door. The yodi not fumer, but my hand drips with bitterness. That beisai mer eiver al kapis aminol, and from my from my fingers, bitterness or nervousness or whatever um, drips on the on the on the the door handle. Pasachti ani lodeidi vedeidi hamak over. I open the door for my beloved, and he's gone. Nafshi yotza bedabre, my soul took flight when he spoke to me, but now I seek him and I can't find him. I call him, but he doesn't answer. The Rebbe explained that when the Nishama responds to God and says, we took off our garment, we can't start over again, we're, we're out of it already, we don't know, we don't remember, we're too, too far gone, and God doesn't take no for an answer, he creates a hole in the door, and reaches in to let himself in, that causes a reaction in the Jewish neshama that we don't understand. That we don't understand. We don't know what that's coming from. Because in our mind, we're still saying, no, we're not interested. Took off the garments already, not going to go put them back on. Doesn't make any sense. If it doesn't make any sense, you should put your garments back on to open the door for your beloved, for God. Then how do you explain this feeling you have? That his initi initiative is causing in you? You, don't, you can't explain it. So the Rebbe says, what happens is that Jews have a feeling, uh, an arousal, uh, an inspiration that they can't explain. So they run around not knowing what to do with themselves. Because they can't explain what it is that's stirring them. And that's when you have to help a Jew and explain to him that what is stirring you and what is bothering you and what is leaving, making you uh, hyper or excited that you can't explain, it's because you're a Jew. Come put on film. When did the Rebbe say this? Purim of 1960. Purim of 1960. And as we were learning in Tanya earlier, all all the neshamas of a given generation get their inspiration from the neshama of the tzaddik of that generation. 
and it's uh, it's clear and obvious that the upheavals, the unrest, the the turmoil of the 60s, particularly among Jewish students, and it all began with Jewish students, both in France and in America. It was a few Jewish students who started the whole phenomenon of the 60s. In France, it was a guy named Bendit Cohen. Huh? And in Israel, it was a guy named Mark Rudd. In America, it was a guy named Mark Rudd, I think. Hmm? No, no, that came later. They they grabbed the limelights, but the initial stirrings was, I think, a guy named Mark Rudd. At any rate, this this whole unrest, that whole tumult of running around unsatisfied but not being able to imagine why, looking but not knowing for what, searching without any idea, without any clue of what it is you're searching for. That's what the Rebbe was describing on Purim of 1960, that when God knocks on your door, it makes you crazy. So what happened? <clears throat> Instead of saying, I've taken off my garment, my robe, how can I put it back on again? After this knocking on the door, after this opening up the, the, the hole in the door, the neshama is aroused and runs to open the door. But there's nobody there. My soul took flight when he spoke to me, but now I, I seek him and he's not there. This is what we're talking about this morning. When an event happens that overpowers the klippa, that breaks through in spite of the klippa, when God takes the initiative, and whether you're ready or not, he overrules your system, he scrambles your system, and, and reaches to, to arouse you, then it's a powerful awakening, it's a powerful inspiration. But then you want to use it, and you can't. There's nothing, there's nothing there. Because in and of itself, it doesn't change you. So when the Jew says, how can I start doing mitzvahs? I've been out of it so long. How can I now start doing mitzvahs? All of a sudden, you feel, no, wait, I, I think I will, I think I will. Because I'm all aroused, something happened. My innards were stirred. And then you say, okay, fine, I will, I will. But you can't. What do you mean you will? You were right the first time. You haven't put, you haven't worn your garments, you haven't done mitzvahs in so long, you really can't. So what good was this arousal? What good was this inspiration? It was enough to get you out of bed. It was enough to get you to stand up. But where do you go from there? You're really lost. Because you have no substance. You have an inspiration without substance. You decided, fine, I'll put on my garment. So you put on your garment and you run to the door. But what are you going to eat? You don't know. Because the inspiration was purely external. Nothing on the inside. 
And that's why the Rebbe says in the Maimur that when Jews are aroused in this fashion and they're running around not knowing what to do with themselves, give them nourishment. Give them something on the inside. In 67, it happened again. The Jewish world was deeply moved. Every Jew in the world. There's a prophecy <clears throat> that says, There will come that day, Yitoka B'Shefer Godel. A great shofar will be sounded. And those who are lost in the lands of plenty will come. And those who are oppressed in the lands of Egypt. And they will bow to God. On the holy mountain in Yerushalayim. It's a prophecy. The Rebbe explained that this sounding of the great shofar doesn't mean literally that somebody will be standing there with a ram's horn. Shofar means a call of alarm. An alarm. In the ancient days in Israel, if uh, war broke out, they would sound the shofar. That was the alarm. And that's why it says, concerning the significance of shofar and Rosh Hashanah, that it's like an alarm. It awakens you to the danger of, of sleeping through the new year and not getting ready for the Day of Judgment. As it says in one of the prophets, uh, that Jews are so unresponsive, the Jews are so deeply asleep, that they don't respond even when God calls out loudly. And the prophet says, can you blow a shofar in a city and the people should not tremble? But with Jews, <laughs> you can blow and you blow and they don't even wake up. But, but we see from this that the sound of a shofar means that it causes you to tremble. So, on that day, on some fateful day before the coming of Mashiach, a great shofar will be sounded. Not just a regular shofar. A regular shofar in other words, a regular call of panic is not enough. Because we see that what could be a more urgent call, a more piercing sound that should awaken every Jew and non-Jew than World War II. When the news of the war reached people all over the world, it should have shaken them to their core. It didn't. People heard about what was going on and they half believed it, they half didn't believe it, they complained a little bit, they wrote a, low, uh, they wrote a letter to their congressman, they forgot about it. You know, it's even uglier than that, but we won't, even, we won't go that far. And that even our own Jews... When they, in America, when they found out what was going on in the concentration camps, they poo-pooed it, and they didn't want to make an issue out of it, and it wasn't popular, so they didn't want to tumble, and they hushed it up. So a, a chauffeur was sounded, 
but nobody responded. And that's also a prophecy concerning another shofar. But this one, the prophecy about the great shofar, surprisingly enough, was, was, was the Six-Day War. The amazing thing was that in the Six-Day War, prior to the war, when, when we knew that there was a war imminent, two or three days before it actually began, the response of Jews all over the world was so intense, it was so overwhelming compared to the response to World War II, which is an amazing thing. In World War II, by the time Jews in America and elsewhere had heard about it, a couple of million Jews had already been killed. By the end of it, some six million Jews will have been killed. It didn't stir anybody, except for a rabbi here and there. Otherwise, people were... Here in 67, the war hadn't even begun. It was only a threat of war. And even if there would be a war, so in a war you fight. You lose a few, you win a few. But it's not genocide. And even if, God forbid, there would be genocide, how many Jews were there altogether in Israel at that time? A million and a half. How does that compare to six million Jews in Europe? And yet, the shudder that, that ran through people's spines on hearing that there might be a war in Israel was infinitely greater than the news of World War II. So the great chauffeur, the great awakening, the great uh, arousal was in 67. And what happened? Every Jew, the ones who were spoiled and pampered in the lands of plenty, and those who were oppressed in the lands of oppression, everybody responded. Everybody woke up. And what was the high point of the 67 war? What was the high point of the Six-Day War? The soldiers falling on the wall and kissing it. So the prophecy literally came true in those who were lost in the lands of wealth and those who were oppressed in the lands of oppression everyone's attention and everyone's awe and everyone's devotion was to that to that wall in Yerushalayim. Moshe Dayan, before he died, um, he was not known as ultra-Orthodox while he was alive. But just before he died, he was interviewed by it was an interview or just a conversation with a spokesman for the reform movement and um, they were talking about giving back the territories I think I forget what the issue was 
But the uh, the spokesman said to him, "You really, you don't really think that that's what God wants, do you? About, about either about who is a Jew issue or the territories." And Dayan said, "You don't talk to me about God, because your God and my God are not the same." So this man said to him, "Who is what?" What is your God? He said, my God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he says, oh, you're orthodox. And Diane said, this is quoted in the paper, Diane said, every Israeli is orthodox, if that's what orthodox means. And the guy laughed. So we all know how orthodox all Israelis are. So Dayan said, what do you th why do you think the Israeli soldier who came to the wall in 67, why do you think he cried? Because of its historical significance? He cried because he knew that this is the place where, where, where his God made himself known to his grandparents. And in that sense, every Israeli is orthodox. What happened to the Jews of Russia? 1967 was a major turning point. Where until 67, the average Jew in Russia ignored his Jewishness, was barely conscious of it, and were it not for the fact that the Russians insanely insist on calling them Jew, even as they don't let them be Jews, were it not for that insanity, most Jews in Russia would not even know they're Jewish. It's maybe even safe to say that there are more Jews in Russia who don't know they're Jewish than there are Jews in Russia who do know they're Jewish. So that the official statistic of 3 million Jews in Russia is a joke. There are 12 million, 14 million Jews in Russia. But at any rate, 67 changed that. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, thousands of Jews in Russia decided that they don't belong there. They belong in Israel. Whether they got there or not is a separate question. But they decided that that's where they belong. Because of 67. That's when the Rebbe started the Tefillin campaign. Three days before the war. The Tefillin campaign. The campaign to get all men to put on Tefillin. Primarily, he meant the soldiers in Israel. But wherever Jews were. So for the first time, we rented a truck and went down to Manhattan to ask Jews to put on Tefillin. And this was like, we didn't know how this is done. I mean, this is unprecedented. Standing right in front of us on the street were four kids. Kids, they must have been 12, 11, 12 years old. They were holding an Israeli flag. Each one was holding one corner. So it was flat. Between them was held flat. People walked by and threw in money. We were standing there for maybe a half hour. I came back to the truck and took a look at the flag. It was full. It was full. In a half hour. I mean, the response was incredible. Incredible. 
I mean, it's a little difficult to say, but the response was much greater than the event actually warranted by nature. Because we see that more tragic events didn't get such a response, and yet this one did. So the Rebbe said, start a Tvilin campaign. Why? Because tens of thousands of Israeli soldiers are going to go through an incredible inspiration. And they're going to come back hungry because their outsides will be on fire and their insides will be empty. So before it fades away, before this inspiration peters out, and disappears as if it never was, capture it. Capture it. Give it some substance. That's the nature of miracles. A miracle breaks us out of our habit, breaks us out of our smugness, complacency. But then something has to come to fill that emptiness. The miracle itself does not make you religious. Anybody who becomes religious because of a miracle, the religion is not going to last. That's why people who say, I have become religious because I saw a vision. Wonderful. Today, tomorrow, next day, you'll, you'll drop it, you'll forget it, it'll be all over. Because the very fact that it was a miracle means you can't handle it. A miracle means something bigger than your capacity. Something that blew you away. Well, if it blew you away, then where are you? <laughs> then what's left of you? Say, oh, now I'm religious. No, you're not. You're blown away. And that's why when people say, you know, if there would be a miracle, if God would show us something, then we would become from. Not at all. We've been through that. It's a good kick in the pants, but it doesn't make you anything. It all depends on what follows afterwards.